Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. And I just want to take a moment real quick to let you know, if you have not subscribed to my podcast yet, you can go ahead and do so on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review it, that would be great. I would really appreciate you taking the time to do that as it just sort of helps in the algorithm and helps get my podcast out there more. So go ahead and do that. And today I am welcoming Piat Benkowski to the show. Piat is a disciplinary, has a disciplinary background as an archaeologist and museum curator. He has been professor of archaeology and museology at the University of Manchester, director of the Manchester Museum, chair of Northwest Federation of Museums and Galleries, and before that, head of antiquities at the National Museums Liverpool. For many years, he was the editor of Levant, the journal of the Council of British Research in Levant, and editor of the British Academy Monographics and Archaeology Series. Where Airy Voices Lead by Piet Benkowski is the only book to comprehensively describe the varying historical and contemporary culture beliefs and immortality globally, including Western, Eastern, and animist traditions. Welcome, Piat. Thanks, Amy. Good to talk to you. I hope I got all those words right. That was like a mouthful of stuff. There was, there was a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> so this book was really unique for me and was a remarkable history, as I saw it, of sort of human beings seeming obsession with immortality. That's right. I think um, all cultures that I've ever come across have in some way or other expressed a fascination for the idea of living uh, forever um, and perhaps trying to achieve it in some way. I mean, if you think about ordinary human beings, I think it's, it's a very human thing to wonder, you know, what, what happens at death, what happens after death. Um, I don't think I know anybody personally who's never thought about it. And some people might think, well, that, that's, that's life is all there is. You know, after that, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, others who might want to extend their lives on this earth through, um, you know, reducing um, reducing the effects of aging or maybe going a bit bit further by um, by signing up to a cryonics institute and having themselves um, frozen and hopefully revived in the future um, and there's more religious people who want to um, uh, or expect to uh, live in some sort of uh, afterlife mm-hmm. and I think culturally this is what we um, this is what we find all over the world. Um, you know, cultures in the end are made by people. So it seems to me that immortality is a bit like food, shelter, and sex. It's one of those core elements of every human life and of every culture. Can you take us back briefly and discuss sort of where your understanding of humans first started with this? Because you went you went way back to really properly understand immortality you've got to um you've got to have the written record Uh, that doesn't mean that humans before we have any uh, evidence of writing didn't uh, believe in immortality or didn't hope to achieve it it's just that it's difficult to interpret precisely what for example 
the um, the objects that are left in their grades, for instance, of, of Neanderthals who didn't write. You know, it's a bit difficult to know exactly what those meant. It could well be that um, the objects were things that they expected to use in the afterlife or if there are food items, food to help sustain them either into the journey to the afterlife or in the afterlife itself. And it's likely that they had exactly the same fears and hopes as we do about what happens at death. But unless we've got something written down that tells us about a belief in uh, a possible life after death or, or the, or the certainty of no life after death, then it becomes a question of interpretation and speculation. And we will never know. And that's something that we've got to accept. We will never know for certain. So really, my, my book starts with um, the, the, the earliest written evidence. So that takes us back to about 3,500 uh, BCE in uh, Mesopotamia, more or less the area of modern Iraq. And that's really where you first see the emergence of this interest, preoccupation, curiosity, whatever you want to call it. I think it's the first for the first time that you see um, the, the emergence of this theme around man trying to um, to find immortality. I mean, what's often called um, the earliest uh, story in the world, uh, that of uh, of Gilgamesh, is found in Mesopotamia in the late third millennium. BCE in its, in its earliest form, uh, he was considered by Babylonian tradition to be a real king. So the story is about his search for immortality. He fails to find it, or rather, he has it in his grasp, and he, he loses it, literally, at the last minute. And he concludes that the only route to immortality is through fame and children. And those mm-hmm. themes of searching for immortality, maybe failing, failing to find it, and maybe realizing that all you can have is a sort of symbolic immortality through fame, through your achievements, or through your children, um, is, is a common one. And that goes through many uh, other cultures right up to the, to the present day. The idea that uh, the search for immortality is a vain one. Hmm. That's so interesting to think about it in that context, especially as we're living today, where there is such a quest and, you know, wish to be seen, to be known, to be famous. It's like, has that become another, I never even thought about it this way until you said this, has this become another way for us to kind of channel our fear of death and dying is like, this is a way to preserve that we're going to live forever in some way. I think you're absolutely right. And technologically, it's simply another tool in our armory of, uh, of trying to immortalize ourselves. Um, if you go back again to the, to the earliest historical records in places like uh, ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, the, um, the people who had the, the ability or the resources to, as it were, immortalize themselves, to make themselves um, famous for all time, for their names to reverberate, down the edge, uh, ages, were were the kings and the, um, and the and the warriors and sometimes the um, the priests, but they needed what they needed in order to do that was scribes who would write down their um, achievements and uh, and and uh, artists who would carve them on the walls of the temples and of the um, of the palaces, and sometimes, of course, in that way, those achievements would be invented or at least uh, magnified. Um, mm. Nowadays, through, uh, through things like social media, a lot of the, the messages are actually not that different 
to the way people magnified themselves in the past, especially if you look at something like the, the, the strategies of more uh, um, ordinary people um, mm -hmm. in antiquity. Um, for example, in ancient Rome, you have inscriptions written on uh, uh, epitaphs, epitaphs for the dead, sort of like memorial stones or mm -hmm. gravestones, which introduce the person um, to a passing stranger. And they present an almost idealized version of that person. That's what a lot of the time, it seems to me, we're doing through social media. So I think you're right that this pursuit of that type of symbolic or mortality through fame is just as important today as it was for somebody like, you know, an Egyptian pharaoh or a Mesopotamian king or Gilgamesh or an Achilles. But uh, the one difference is, of course, you no longer have to be a hero uh, because anybody can do it. Uh, right. the, other, the other advantage, uh, which I, I, I point out uh, in my book, is that you don't actually have to be dead anymore in order to do it. <laughs> right. And you can completely, you can shape that story in a way that maybe in the past, even if people tried, right, other people's memories sort of shaped that story. But now people curate their own, their, their own immortality in some way. That's right. I mean, I think, again, those rulers and warriors who made history, in many cases, they did curate their immortality. Mm. One, of the, uh, one of the tasks of a historian and archaeologist is to sift through the information they've left, those inscriptions of their achievements on the, on the temple walls um, and on the palace walls, and try and figure out, well, what actually is true uh, mm -hmm. and what has been made up? You know, how much did this king really do these things himself and how much were done on his behalf by others? And he is simply claimed because he was the king. He hmm. said, well, these are my achievements. Right. Even though somebody else did it, you know? And so what was so interesting to me was throughout religious history, so many religious figures discussed their abilities to connect. And you talk about this with some, with a higher power and, and so many people believe this from a religious perspective. But when people share that they have these experiences today, oftentimes it's dismissed. Can you speak to that? I'm actually not entirely sure. Uh, don't quite understand your question there, Amy. Sorry. So No, that's okay. That's okay. It's probably on my end. So you talked like for I'm, – I'm Jewish, so I don't have a real – great understanding of Jesus. and But you talked about, particularly with Jesus, talking about having information given to him through sort of these greater connections, right, with some sort of higher power, higher being, maybe something that wasn't visible in human form. Yes. And yet today, and that's, that's wholly accepted in many religious circles, right? But yet today, when we talk about the average person maybe having a connection with something that feels bigger than themselves, or, you know, seeing how I kind of got into this work, having connections with my aunt who passed away and other loved ones who've passed away, that sometimes that gets dismissed. The difference between accepting that from a religious perspective, but when sort of the average person experiences that were less maybe accepting of it? The, I think this is this idea of um, being connected to a higher power, but more than that, actually somehow being connected maybe to the dead and to mm -hmm. your ancestors. And like you've just said, you know, something like somebody like your, your aunt is something that has uh, a very great antiquity. 
Um, so, for example, in the in the ancient Near East, um, they had a very a very simplified understanding of the let's call it the cosmos. There was the earth on which humans lived. There was heaven, which was just for the gods. That wasn't somewhere where humans could go. Mm-hmm. And there was the underworld where the dead went. Now, the ancient Near East didn't really have um, a sense of personal immortality, but that underworld still offered a sort of bleak continued existence for all dead souls. Um, And it was structured in a sort of human form. So Mm. it still had a a king and a queen and some sort of court um, court framework and ceremony. But there were ways in which uh, living humans could connect with the dead. And in every culture, there's always been, there's always been persons, they're normally specialists, who um, have that ability to connect with the afterlife. In some places, they're called priests. In some uh, spiritualities, they're called shamans or mm-hmm. seers. And in some, they're just called, you know, the mad woman at the end of the village. Right. In, some, in, 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 some, in some cultures, they are honoured and respected. In others, they are uh, laughed at but tolerated. And in others, they're seen as uh, dangerous and they're burnt at the stake. But this, this, this ability to uh, connect to something beyond living humans uh, is something that, that goes back a, a long way. And it's, we see it in, in many, many cultures. As I said, it, it, we see it in the ancient Near East. We also see it in, um, in uh, uh, contemporary indigenous cultures, like uh, among Native Americans or Australian uh, Aborigines. And so you talk about this notion of this ongoing debate of the existence of the soul. So can you speak to some of the points on both sides of the argument? Because you really laid it out quite beautifully. I thought, you know, sometimes people take one side and not the other, and they only show sort of the materialist perspective. But you kind of contrast both of them. So can you share some of those points about whether or not a soul exists on both sides? The idea of the soul permeates a lot of languages. I actually start the chapter on the, um, the soul in the book by um, quoting some of the uh, sort of language that we use around soul. So, you know, body and soul, soulmate, soul music, to sell one's soul, soul searching, soul destroying. Most of those probably don't have any link to any religious understanding of the soul, but it's really interesting um, how, how those, um, those words uh, reverberate um, in our uh, contemporary language. Historically, a lot of cultures, most cultures probably, have had some understanding that human beings are composed of, um, on the one hand, a material body, and on the, on the other hand, something that is immaterial, something that um, is their personality or character, or using the, um, the Greek word, which we still use today, their psyche. The, the understanding of what that is can be very different. One of the reasons why, as you say, I rather laboriously lay it out in the book is because we cannot assume that because we translate a word as soul, that it always means exactly what we think it means in different cultures. So I've got to be very careful 
to say, well, in the ancient Near East, these were the words used, and we might actually translate it to soul, but that's that's a very sort of a generalized word to use. Um, and what what they understood by this was, you know, X, Y, and Z, whereas in the ancient Egypt, it may have been something different, and in the ancient uh, Greece, it was something uh, different again. Uh, one of the things I find um, fascinating is how through um, the... Uh, early years of the development of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. There were these furious debates about um, whether or not human beings have a soul, if that soul is immortal, and what happens at death. You know, is it just the um, the body that is uh, is resurrected and uh, goes to an afterlife, or is it only the soul, or is it both of them? And it's almost like a, like a whodunit seeing all these different um, um, different um, ideas um, over the centuries. And sometimes if somebody put their foot wrong and said something slightly unorthodox, it was really bad news for them. You know, they could be burned to the stake for saying the wrong thing about um, the resurrected body or the immortal soul. So certainly in, in those three religions up to the present day, there is a very strong idea that uh, there is uh, an immortal soul, and certainly within Christianity, the, the current, or um, let's be specific, within Catholicism, the current understanding, uh, or the current teaching, is that at death, or at the day of judgment, the body, the resurrected body, will join again to the immortal soul, and in that form, they will, um, they will go to heaven. But, um, of course, modern scientific orthodox opinion i mean it has a has a different orthodoxy and it's rather rejected the whole idea that there is a soul mm. the, the 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 discussion there for the most part has concluded that far from human beings made up being made up of uh, a mortal body and uh, an immortal soul in fact all they have is the mortal body and uh, scientific orthodoxy uh, certainly since probably since the um late 19th century, but it's became, it became an orthodoxy probably in the 20th century, um, has concluded that all the, all the things that previously people, religions, cultures thought that a soul did, its function, can be all um, undertaken by the, by the brain. And that's a material brain, you know, mm -hmm. all the neurons firing in the brain. So um, current scientific orthodoxy is that um, that the brain does all that a soul needs to do so that the soul doesn't exist because it actually doesn't doesn't need to exist because all that work is being done by by uh, something else and and one of the things i explore in the book is are they right in a sense that too is a historical quest looking over the centuries at the different um, ideas for and against the soul and for and against this uh, this orthodox um, scientific view and as you pointed out um, I managed to sit on the fence quite comfortably and be very objective about all this because the conclusion I come to is that you know we don't know which of these views is right any of the ideas about a soul whether in Christianity or whether in in uh, in, in, in other religions and spiritualities or even the idea that we don't have a soul and that we're made up of all, all, our, all our thinking and all our, all our perception is all done by a material brain. In the end, that, that may well be true, but it still remains a hypothesis. The point is we do know so little about the brain and there is so much that actually so 
up to now cannot be explained by simply neurons firing in the brain that mm -hmm. I feel we have no um, alternative but to leave, uh, leave the question open to say well we don't know which of these is correct you know we may feel very strongly about one or the other but we have to accept that in fact we may be wrong and the other person may be right so that's one of the, one of the conclusions i come to that we've got you, to be we've got to be objective and open minded that's like a, a should be a global takeaway right do you think we'll ever come to any agreement on this i mean they've clearly been at it for you know hundreds of thousands of thousands and thousands of years with the same debate some philosophers and scientists think that we 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 won't because it's something about trying to understand our own consciousness and what makes us up makes it almost impossible for us, in fact, to answer that, um, that question definitively. The standard scientific response is that, well, we might not know for certain now, but one day we will. And scientific research is always continuing. And it's, it's, this is the, the, the so-called post-dated checks for the future argument, that we don't know now, but one day we will. And we just have to be uh, satisfied with that. The problem with that argument is that any of the worldviews could use the same argument. You know, mm -hmm. a, a, a Christian could turn around and say, well, yes, that's true. But in 50 or 100 or 1,000 years' time, we might suddenly get an insight into actually what the soul is um, and how it works within a human being. So that, um, that post-dated checks for the future argument works both ways. I sometimes think about uh, the comparison between uh, different uh, disciplines, because certainly in, in my discipline, in archaeology and history, that sort of um, argument really doesn't hold water. Um, if, you, if you've got uh, evidence that does not lead to proof, then what you have to do is keep all your options open. Say, well, this is the evidence we've got, and it, and therefore what may have happened could be you know, A, B, C, or D. And in the future, evidence will show us whether it's going to be A, B, C, or D. But at the moment, we don't know, and therefore we've got to keep all of those options open. So that's sort of where I am when we come to um, things like um, the soul, whether we have one, or, or not. I think there's, there's both evidence in each way, but there are also um, problematic areas and big explanatory gaps, whichever way you look at it. So we have no alternative but to leave it open. Mm -hmm. I like that. Evidence doesn't lead. If the evidence doesn't lead to proof, we need to keep all options open. So how have we tried to achieve immortality? I know we talked a little bit about just kind of through fame and through legacy. But what about the real scientific ways we've attempted to? I mean, I think just in some ways, just our, our intense need to kind of search for the fountain of youth is a way of trying to put off our immortality. You know, everything that we try to do to keep ourselves young and looking young and feeling young is a way to push off immortality. But what, what other ways are are there that you've well researched. before before I answer your question I mean you've raised a really interesting point there and that's the one about youth and uh, in a lot of the fascinating myths and legends from different uh, cultures uh, there's there's a, a tension between the search for immortality and the search for eternal youth and a lot of the great immortality stories um, they, they the 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 attempt to achieve immortality falters because they uh, either eternal youth 
is inaccessible or, for instance, the protagonist forgets to ask for it, either for themselves or for their loved one. And that's a wonderful theme that runs through. Uh, and it raises the question, is immortality without eternal youth worth having? Mm. And that sort of it becomes quite an important question in contemporary times. You know, we've got um, a, an aging population putting s stress and strain on the health services of most countries. Over about 50% of people um, over 80 will have or already have dementia. That's without any sort of immortality. Mm -hmm. that, that's just people getting older within the normal human lifespan and most, most scientists don't think that it is possible for humans to live much beyond 125. I mean, that sounds pretty good, 125 for most of us. Um, but but if, you, if you then think that, well, unless you have eternal youth, what were those last 40 odd years going to right. be life? You know? And would you want to, would you want to have immortality um, beyond that? So that's a theme that runs through a lot of... Um, a lot of stories um, in antiquity. But so, I mean, to go back to your, your question about, well, how, how can we actually achieve that immortality? Again, in some ways, you could, you could sit back and think, as an individual, what ways do I think it is possible to be immortal? And that's really what different cultures have done. So there's been the idea of, of resurrection, that you die, but then you're reborn. And the interesting question, which we we'll come back to later, well, if you are reborn, where will you be reborn? There's reincarnation, so that you will, you will die, but um, that, that spirit or soul, or some essence of you will be reborn in another body. There can be other types of transformation, so you might not necessarily be reborn in a human body. You might be uh, reborn as a plant or an animal um, or a spirit. Then, of course, we've already been talking about the immortal soul, that it isn't anything to do with the, the body as such, but there is something immortal within us, and that's what survives. And then, of course, there's the idea of extending life indefinitely, which we've already touched on. That's what Gilgamesh tried to do. That's what the people who sign up to cryonics institutes still try to do today, in some ways doing exactly what Gilgamesh did four and a half thousand years ago. With this desire to achieve immortality, if we ever did, I think about this a lot, how do you think it would shift how we live? If we were able, I guess, let me change this, to change this question, to achieve immortality in the physical form, because that's really what people are talking about, right? Yes. I think it depends. Are you achieving immortality on this earth, or are you achieving immortality in a physical form in some sort of afterlife? Mm. And, I, and I think answering the questions, it, it, it it changes your answer depending on which mm -hmm. route, route route you take. Right. Obviously, we have no case studies of people who have lived forever on this earth. Um, there's there's lots. Sounds of, awful to me, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's lots of there's lots of stories, um, myths, and legends. Again, going back thousands of years, and some of them um, fairly recent. Trying to explore, well, what would that be like, and would it be would it be worthwhile? Some of them are about the question we've touched on of eternal youth. But what a lot of them have in common is that once you've lived the equivalent of several lifetimes, that maybe life might actually become tedious, that you end up repeating things time and time again. And in a lot of these immortality stories over the centuries, the immortal 
ends up wishing they were dead because they 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 no longer actually wish to um, um to live forever because they they've lost interest in it hmm. um they they so maybe they 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 lose a sense of who they are mm-hmm. as individuals and this has been covered in stories it's been covered by science fiction writers it's been explored a lot by philosophers as well you know as you know philosophers like to take a sort of a, a what if scenario and explore it to its uh, logical conclusion mm-hmm. um and there, there's there's quite a lively debate among philosophers as to whether or not immortality would be um, would be worth having and some of them think well things will keep on changing and therefore i will actually retain an interest in life and doing things differently whereas others uh, will say well even if things were changing over the countless period of thousands and millions of years the human brain would have to develop in such a way that we remember things in different ways i mean imagine trying to hold on to family relationships over a period of thousands or millions mm-hmm. of years you'd forget who your parents were you'd forget mm-hmm. who your children were and it's these sorts of explorations as to whether immortality on this earth would be worthwhile that um It's such fascinating, a, fascinating yeah. reading. The, I'm just I, thinking about like a dinner table conversation about about that. I think it would be a great, great topic. It would, and I think you'd find a, a, a range of um, of different views. I think it changes a little bit if you then imagine that your uh, your your immortality is going to be in an afterlife of some kind. Mm-hmm. That would make, of course, another great dinner uh, time conversation because you then have to imagine, well, where are we spending that immortality? What mm-hmm. is that heaven or hell like? And again, different cultures have come up with so many myriad descriptions of what heaven or hell might look like that the sometimes people ask, well, will heaven be boring? And you know, you really can't say because you, you have to ask the next question, say, well, what what sort of heaven do you think you're going to be in? Once you describe that, then we can discuss whether or not it's going to be boring. But the, the, culturally, there are so many different pictures of heaven and, and of hell. That it, and and they're, they're conditioned by things like religious factors, by cultural factors, by how different cultures understand their universe. So there's, you know, there's, no one, there's no one description of heaven or hell, even within, if you just take one religion, uh, Christianity, the, the way... Um, heaven has been um, endlessly imagined over 2,000 years or so, has absolutely no consensus at all. And that's just within one religion. Well, and I just think about just, this is, this is so multidimensional, but just, I feel like the fear of death drives our behavior. It, that is like the driver of so many people's behaviors, right? Ultimately, yes. unconsciously, is this fear of death. If you take that fear away, how will that monumentally shift the way people live their lives? Of course, a lot of people argue that's what the, um, the major religions do in some way. They try and take away the fear of death. Mm-hmm. What they're offering you is some sort of immortality, taking away the fear of death death in return for behaving in certain ways that by those religions are deemed good, mm. in inverted, um, mm-hmm. inverted commas. And of course, a lot of sociologists and philosophers think that, that in fact, this idea of fear of death is um, the, the, the ultimate cause of all culture, that mm-hmm. un- unless we had death, then there wouldn't be any point doing anything. Right, and again, this has been this has been explored in in different ways, both in um, in in uh, fiction, 
uh, and in, in philosophy. And it's one of those questions which, you know, going back to your imagined dinner time conversation, in a sense, can have no correct answer mm -hmm. because it's just a way of looking at what, why do we do things? You know, what, what, what are we here for? Is there, mm -hmm. a, is there a purpose to life? You know, what's the meaning of, of it all? And some, in fact, quite a lot of philosophers and, and uh, psychologi uh, psychologists and um, sociologists think that, that, that overcoming death is the whole purpose of culture. Mm. Um, that uh, you're, you're right that uh, the fear of death is something very strong within individual humans. I mean, we do find it extremely difficult to imagine our own death and non-existence. Mm -hmm. and we fear the almost unimaginable prospect of having no awareness or sensation at all. I mean, the idea of not being is something right. quite difficult and it's scary. And that fear is perfectly normal and understandable. I mean, I'm not, as, a, as an archaeologist, I'm not convinced that fear of death, overcoming death, and the, the, this, this craving for immortality is the ultimate um, uh, cause of culture. And I think it's interesting that the people who propose that idea tend to be philosophers and sociologists mm -hmm. um, rather than historians and archaeologists. Being in the, 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 there are so many different complex explanations around the history of human societies that having this single universal explanation of human culture that it's about overcoming death just seems um, very very simplistic yeah. and if you and if you go back to our earliest documented religion again back in the ancient mesopotamia i think you can argue it wasn't actually about um, immortality at all you know, some people say, well, religions are created in order to overcome the fear of death and to provide uh, immortality. But I don't think that earliest, the, our earliest documented religion was created for that reason at all. And there was, there was a recognition that they were uh, superhuman controlling powers, the gods, and they demanded obedience and worship and human beings wanted to influence them. They wanted to influence the natural forces that, um, that, that uh, worked on life, fertility and growth. So they wanted to influence things like the sun, the rain and the wind. It could be argued that, well, that's, those, those are uh, ways of, uh, of living longer. It's a mm -hmm. craving for, for overcoming death. But, you know, I think you'd have to be, have a fairly creative argument to make that stick. So one last question not sure this is a fair one, but after all your research on this topic, what do you believe? I'm, I'm going to go back to my comfortable sitting on the fence. <laughs> I had a part, feeling that's partly, where you were going to land. Partly because that's what I've always done as an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you know, we talked before about evidence, where, what does evidence show us? Um, uh, is, if there isn't proof of something, then we need to keep options open. And that's really what I see in this you know, global survey of different ways of um, the different cultures have uh, tried to achieve immortality or have not believed in it at all. There's no certainty in any of them. And for me, one of the conclusions I come to in the book is that I think it's very important to accept that other viewpoints may be correct so for me it becomes an ethical issue it's mm -hmm. it's a question of of uh, accepting and respecting other worldviews other perspectives even if they are uh, not the ones that we have been brought up with uh, that we firmly believe you know, you've got to you've got to accept that 
and I've used this phrase before, you've got to accept that the other person may be right. So maybe it, it, back to your point, it has nothing to do with death at all, this fear, but it's really about being comfortable with uncertainty. That's yes. kind of what, what, if we could master that, then we can live. It's being comfortable with uncertainty and it's being comfortable with the difference of others. And one of the, just to round off, one of the things I find fascinating, and it's an old and much labored point, is just how many traditions around immortality were borrowed between cultures and mm -hmm. religions. So a lot of what we believe now has been borrowed from the ancient Near East or from ancient Greece. And there's so many common threads between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And yet, at so many uh, points, these religions seem to be at loggerheads. And yet, when it comes to that really important point about, well, what happens to it as a death? What, what happens in the afterlife? They have exactly the same traditions. You know, they borrowed from each other. They have exactly the same traditions. They're, they're, they had similar debates concerning whether human is a physical body, an immortal soul, or both. Do they both, do they reunite after death? What aspect of a per person goes to heaven? It seems to me, when you come down to the really important things, you know, these have uh, so much agreement and so many shared uh, traditions and borrowed between each other. And that seems to me to be a really important point. It's almost as if the similarities are more important than the differences. Well, thank you so much, Piat, for your time today. And if people want to find you, find your book, Where Airy Voices Lead, where can they do that? Well, the, um, uh, the book comes out at the end of May, but it's already available for pre-order in the usual places like Amazon. Ooh, I didn't realize I got a sneak preview to that. You did, yes. <laughs> and is there is there a website that people could find you on? Or Yes, the, the website's basically my name and then okay. .co.uk. So it's piotrpienkowski.co.uk. Okay. And I will have that on my show notes so people, if they're interested in looking, can can find you. Great. Thank you so much today for your time. Thank you, Amy. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? wondering what comes next and what it all means, head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. <laughs>